welcome to Journey to the Centre of Food, a voyage of discovery for curious foodies everywhere. My name's Jay Taylor, I'll be your pilot today, along with our foodie navigator James Winter. Hello! And on today's show, we're taking a trip to the Emerald Isle as we celebrate Irish cooking secrets as one of the country's most vibrant and talented chefs, Anna Hoare, exploring the techniques and ideas she's using to great success in her restaurant Myrtle. So without further ado, let's take a journey to the centre of Irish cooking. Hello James, how are you sir? I haven't seen you for a couple of weeks. It's been a couple of weeks, almost forgot how we do the intro there, I wasn't going yeah. to suddenly <laughs> jump in and say hello. Yeah, nice to see you, how are you? I'm good. Apologies to our listeners. We have had a couple of weeks off to take a draw, a draw Apolo- a long breath. Apologies that we've given God. Apologies that we're we're back. Yes, exactly. <laughs> those people nobody, have, nobody those noticed. People have been enjoying some other podcasts in the last. <laughs> yes, exactly. So the three people left. Thanks, thanks for thanks for wondering where we'd gone. Most people just tapping on their phones, going, "Has this worked? Yeah. Is this downloaded? Or is this not downloaded mm. this week?" I was I was being. Um, force-fed Italian food in, oh, in Italy. sounds wonderful. My Lord, I have no idea how they exist as a country when they eat so much food. It's incredible. We, we went to a, a place up in the mountains and they were four courses every night. And, and after you've had the second course, the pasta course, I can barely move. And they give you such a look if you don't plough into the meat course then and, and with full gusto mm. I've never. Night. I have a confession to make. I've never really understood how to work an Italian menu. I really don't get it. I don't understand because I don't want four courses. So I think, am I allowed to just have a main course? It doesn't seem right. And then, I mean, I end up not having enough. I and mean, then some people have a main course and I don't want one. It's all, it's all, never works. It's like having a square wheel on a cart for me. I just bump around. I, I, I really struggled. And also, I didn't quite know what, how much to eat to be polite enough because the lady that was serving us was quite quite harsh and if you didn't eat everything she did I thought you were going to say she was quite rotund as well (laughs) no no she was clearly she was she was mean (laughs) if we did not eat all our stuff she was like "Mm -hmm." is that why she did not like men either Mm. she was just just everything every time you getting up and going for like a 10k run every morning just uh, (laughs) we were skiing uh, so yes i was carrying all the kids ski clobber to the to the slope so I, i was certainly working up and and one discovery while we were there uh, which, thank God, we didn't discover till the last day, it was an ice cream shop, you know, one of the hmm. gelateria, which I can never say properly. Um, but what they did was they said something to me in Italian when I went in there, and obviously in my traditional way, I sort of nodded like I completely understood. Oh, yes, yes, that, that and that. And what they did was they got the ice cream cone and then they put it underneath this tap of uh, molten milka chocolate, which they then pour into the cone and then they put the ice cream on top. What? So what happens is... The ice cream then then freezes or, or cools yeah. the chocolate. So when you get down to the cone, it's you get hard. sort of half solidified yeah. chocolate the whole way down the cone. Do My you, word, it's ridiculous. Some of good. our I know I know how our, our <laughs> listeners like kind of branded things from from our nostalgic childhoods, but there used to be a little syrupy thing called like ice chocker mountain or something. Yes, of did course. the same thing, didn't it? Yes, you'd pour it, it over your ice cream, and it would go hard, and then you'd crack it like a like a I don't know like a shell. What was it called? What was it called? Something was mountain. It, called fr- it was something, something. mountain because it, it was a cone-shaped bottle as well, just to make it even more appealing to little me. Yes, and it was that really. I remember one of the flavors was that you know there was a strawberry flavor which tasted nothing like strawberries, but yeah. it was that bright red sort of made you slightly wince when you mm. ate it, but yeah. in a good way. That's it. That's the stuff. Like and I, we delight. always bought the orange one, which was horrible. Just tasted like cough mixture, but you would just go with it because <laughs> it was it was all about the mountain you were making. It's all about the sugar. Yeah. <laughs> just enough sugar in it. E numbers are brilliant, weren't they? Yeah. <laughs> my parents being worried about me when I was a child because I was having I was, I was I was having lots of e numbers and getting awfully excited and I was as a kid just heard this word e numbers being whispered. Well, oh, many e numbers in it. There was something <laughs> on the news this week, so we're being topical for a minute. But apparently, our our, our school children, pre sort of primary school children, are are getting larger. Not I don't just mean fatter. I mean physically larger because apparently we're much better nutritionally based these days than we used to be in our childhood. So the schools don't have big enough chairs anymore. So the teachers are all complaining. But the classrooms are too small. Really? Because the kids are looking... Getting, kids are getting bigger and bigger. It's getting I taller, can testify to that. Wider. Going on the tube platforms with the kids who... You know they're in school because they're all wearing their uniforms. Yeah. And they must be 15 and they're all... I'm six, two and a half. And they're all towering over me. Mm. There they are. Yeah, it's incredible. I don't mm. know where it stops, does it? Does I don't know. Well, getting look, bigger? Yes. I think that's what happens. <laughs> is that what happens, is it? Oh, and we get really small, like little old men. <laughs> we start, but our ears keep growing. I think that's the way it works. Oh, but anyway, yes. There's a, there's, a, there's a beautiful portrait of the there future there go. for us to... Absolutely. Uh, I'm just going to go back to Italy and just, just cut, spend my uh, retirement mm. eating that ice cream every day. Mm. And you just get wider. 
Uh, yes, that's fine. In Italy, you wouldn't get a choice. That woman would just come up to me and say, insist I did. Uh, anyway, let's talk about proper food for a while because we have mm. a uh, a wonderful guest who uh, I will give an introduction to. Before I do, though, James, uh, you know Anna, uh, and you, you well, I do a little bit. Yeah, I mean, I met Anna. I don't know how long ago. I'm looking at her very youthful face, and she hasn't changed at all. But it's probably about ten years ago when I met her, <laughs> and and she was working for Gordon Ramsay, I think, at the time in a restaurant in Battersea. I think that's where we first. Yes, yeah, and you know, yes, yeah, so of course, you know, and obviously was struck immediately by the fact that this. This woman should be on television because <laughs> she's she so is. charismatic <laughs> and clearly a wonderful cook and clearly brilliant and charming and wonderful company it was it was a no-brainer you know and, and you know how rare that is jay you know that you know you look at look in every corner of the earth to find people with that secret something that television seems to you know to to revel in and and anna's got it you know so and that sparkle is mm. when you, when it's there it's just there and when it's not it, you keep searching and when it pops up it does loom you're just like wow i have no it, it but when it's combined nowhere, for it? me with someone who can actually cook and i don't mean this disrespectfully to other people on television who also have the, the secret magic but not many of them in my view the challenge was to find people could cook because that's what what shows i was making was about people who could cook but then also had the special magic so it was extra challenging so they are like hen's teeth, you know. They, you know. So we want to talk to Anna about this: how you mm. how you cook and talk at the same time. I'll give Anna her introduction now. Now she can actually, and then she'll be allowed to actually talk on the podcast. Hailing from Dublin, Anna Hall has been cooking professionally for almost twenty years. She spent the last fourteen in London working for, as James said, chefs like Gordon Ramsay, Philip Howard, and Shane Osborne. And now she has her own restaurant, Myrtle, located in Chelsea, offering modern European cooking with an Irish influence, using the finest Irish produce. Produce plus, as we've said, she's a TV chef appearing on all manner of shows now uh so to explore all this we are delighted to welcome to the podcast Anna Hall hello Anna hello hi <laughs> <laughs> I honestly could have lovely to meet you I could listen to the two of you's chat all day I was like happy enough not not joining in oh, great no. listening to you and obviously yeah we're, we're also joined by your young son who might pop in just for listeners who might hear and, and obviously we were talking about how big children are going to be in this, this future your son I'm going to I'm going to predict now he's going to he's going to be tall and strong and wide and need a much bigger chair at school because I bet he's, he's fed going well. to be a monster he's going to be a monster <laughs> He like he's growing. I can hear him growing. He's growing so fast. <laughs> you Lord can you can hear Lord. him creak, can't you? Like, like trees, his like toes are trees. like bursting out of like baby grows that are like brand new. And I'm like, how is your toe drilling through the material? <laughs> Yeah, I, no, I know what you're big. talking about. Mine is slightly <laughs> older, and I keep insisting upon them to stop trying. It grows a heart yes. because the clothes are just ludicrous. You just go through them at such a rate of knots, mm. isn't it? It's ridiculous. So, yes, and especially with you as his mum, I'm sure he's going to be eating fantastically well all the time you're going to use him to experiment on when you try some new recipes what do you think of that? i i think he's a bit young for me experimenting <laughs> experimenting my dishes on but i am so delighted to have somebody that i can like give all of my food to like it's incredible like he's going to have to eat what i give him for at least what is it like 11 years and then <laughs> they start mm. then they start pushing back but yeah he's and he's a real good eater he's a real like he'll just eat anything so it's quite nice, yeah, because he's on—he's on the, all the solid food now. So, yeah, it's good. Now we want to hear about your—we want to hear about your restaurant now. Mm. But I would love to hear before that about your journey to now. Tell us a little bit. Give us your origin story. Where you where you came from and how you ended up mm. cooking food in a fancy restaurant that you own in Chelsea because it's quite so, joyous. Yeah, it's kind of odd. Where you know, so um, I come from like a real traditional family in Dublin. And I went to like an all-girls school, which is really common in Ireland as well. And the idea of being a chef that just wasn't mentioned in your career guidance, that wasn't at all uh, mentioned. Anyway, my, my best friend's mother turned around to me one day and she said, Anna, you know, when you're in the kitchen, you change, you know, something in you changes. And I was like, really? I was like, OK, Liz. So I went into school. I said, listen, my friend's mom said I should be a chef. She laughed. <laughs> Like she laughed, like tears. I'm not joking. Tears came out. Of, she was slapping her thigh. Why? She was like, she thought it was like the most ridiculous thing in the world because she, uh, she just thought I was, she basically, what she said to me was, when you get married, you'll be sick of cooking. That's oh, wow. it. That was it. That's so fantastic. I was like, oh, okay. And she was like, you should be a teacher, Anna. That's in your character. That's what you should be. I was like, all right, Mrs. O'Shea, see you later. So I forgot about it. And then I accidentally walked into a kitchen three years later and it was just an empty kitchen. It was like a sea of stainless steel. Nobody was in it. I was just told that I was to open big tins of fruit cocktails 
to help the kitchen when they were on a break. And that was it. Something clicked. And oh, I was wow. like, this it is really it. It really was like a lightning bolt moment. Absolutely. Like one of those real eureka moments where I was like, something in this place feels right. So mm. I went home, told my parents. They went mental. Because <laughs> my parents were like, anything you want to be, Anna. Anything in your life you can be. You could be a road sweeper and your mommy and I will support you. They're both from very working class families. So, like, I think what they were hoping is that I'd say I wanted to be a doctor or, you know, do something that might cost them money and then they'd support me. So when I said chef, they both screamed at the same time, no, 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 no. This is not what we meant. Um, so yeah, I'm so old now because when I first started cooking, the industry was different. So to become a chef now, to be a young woman going to your family now to become a chef, people would be like, right. You love food. You don't mind working hard. You're going to be grand. But back then, it really was kind of riddled with like criminals and people who didn't know what to do with their career. And it was just a different bunch of people. And then there was a tiny percent of people who were passionate and driven. So my parents were like, this is a terrible idea. And it took me, I'd say, a good eight years until they came around again. So that is the longest introduction to the beginning oh, no, of explaining. But amazing, but and, and so brilliant. But so, but Liz was it? But noticed Liz. that change in you in a kitchen, which is obviously so evident now. I mean, it would be obvious to someone to spot it now, but to have that foresight to to nudge you to plant that seed in you is ex- yeah, it's extraordinarily rare. Well, I it's mean, extraordinary. Yeah, and people say it to me now. So the, the, as I'm talking to you now. And I, I don't know what I look like when I cook, but loads of people say that the minute I start explaining something, they're like, oh, there she is. I'm like, what? So I don't know what I look like when I go into food mode, but it's not it's not this mode, right. apparently. <laughs> um, but like something, it's like as if a little gear in my brain changes. Um, but but I, yeah, so I... But I guess Mrs. O'Shea was picking up on your natural ability to teach, right? So, you know, the two things combined make you a brilliant chef, right? James, you know. you're you're on the money there, James. Yeah. Any good good chef should be a good teacher. Um, sorry, any any mediocre chef should be a great teacher. It doesn't matter what. As in, you if you cannot teach, you cannot lead. You cannot do anything but cook for yourself. So no, you you have to be able to teach. You have to be able to share and explain. I mean, part of the issues we have at our industry is you know, people not understanding the importance of that. That's really, really important. How do you then go from though, as you say, when you started out, it mm. wasn't a easy path. It wasn't a well-trodden path. And obviously there'll be barriers in your way. How did you go from the interest and the passion to then the heights you are you are now? Because lots of people would have stopped along the way and ended up, you know, in, in local pubs or cafes or restaurants or, or whatever it is. How did you keep charting that? Is there a burning ambition in there or is it just following passion? You know what, it's, it's a really good question because uh, a really vain person would go, well, because I'm so great and I make great decisions and I'm so wonderful. But I mean, I think a bit of lady luck on my side. Like <laughs> I, I did my apprenticeship in two places, a place in Galway, which I only chose Galway because I wanted to get away from my parents. So I was like, oh yeah, uh, all the Dublin... <laughs> All the Dublin places are filled, mum and dad. Uh, i got to go up the country. And then the head chef pulled me aside on the last day of my apprenticeship, of, of, in that first apprenticeship. And he said, you love cooking. Next apprenticeship, you have to go to your tutor and say, will you send me to a place where everything is homemade? Because I must have done his head in. How do you make that? How does that make? Can I make the homemade? How do you do it? Because everything we did was open from a packet. And I think he, he used to be a trained chef, but now he was less inclined to make things homemade. So I think I wrecked his head. And then that's <laughs> it. I went to my tutor and I said, um, I would like to go somewhere where they make the ice creams homemade and the bread. And he went, oh, okay, well, you know, I've got a friend, but he's already got a person in there. Sure, you know, fuck it, I'll ask him. And then I ended up in Le Crevan, which is one of the best restaurants in Dublin uh, as my second apprenticeship. And then that was it. And that's where it just all went from there. Wow. Amazing. Yeah. Yeah. Very, very lucky. That's lucky. That's Mm. timing. That's just saying something when you're thinking, you know, the way sometimes you're like, I won't say it. And then it doesn't happen. So it's like just a bit of luck saying it at the right time. And then I got in. But but I'm just wondering, because obviously you love learning as well as teaching, don't you? I mean, is that that the same in all subjects? I mean, is that something that is part of your character or is it just food you're interested in? (laughs) James, spoken like a man who doesn't know me. No, I'm like like a walking head injury. Like, seriously. (laughs) Uh, The only thing I've ever been good at is cooking and anything related to that. So management, all stuff like that. Apart from that, like, 
when it comes to like pub quizzes, my, my boyfriend's like, anybody want to swap a team member? Because <laughs> it's like, I'm useless. Yeah. I am. But like when it comes, whatever it is about the bug of, of hospitality, it's not just cooking. I love everything about the guests. So it's not like I'm just selfishly in the kitchen doing my bit. I love making sure that the, the customer feels the whole experience. Mm. I love it. Mm. Love it. What does it feel like when you open your own restaurant? How, how, what's the sort of percentage of, of fear versus ego versus worry versus passion? How, what is it actually like when you step off that, that precipice? Have you ever taken drugs? <laughs> not the, not the <laughs> Have right you ever been like this, I'd say. <laughs> entering into dr- drugs as they're about to kick in? It's like that, but very long term. Uh, I would definitely say I had pretended to people I had a lot of fear. But the truth is, I knew in my gut, which is a terrible way of going into business, I guess. I knew everything. You know, when things click into place inside your mind, I don't know how your minds work, but I knew when I was opening my restaurant that I would make it work no matter what. And I I met with other people who wanted to do business with me so that I would have an investor. I met with lots of different interesting people. And I remember deciding to do it on my own. It was because I was given advice from another investor years ago where he said, it's such a small thing. You should always try to do it on your own. But when I was opening the restaurant, everybody kept saying, if you don't get an investor, it will never work. Mm. So it's kind of confusing and what to do. But in my head, I was like, I just knew I could do it. And that was like freeing and Mm. elevating. And I don't have, and I really mean this, I don't have any bad stories of opening up my restaurant. I've got stories of stuff going wrong. But they're not bad stories because I fixed it because I figured it out and I got on with it. Mm. I love it. Mm. I love it. And I'm going to open as many restaurants as I can do until I stop loving it because it's just like um, a vocation. Mm. It's like it chose me. I didn't choose it. Now, if listening to Anna's got you hungry and you're thinking you want to pop out to Myrtle for a fancy night's dinner out, well, what you probably are going to need is some fancy new clothes to wear. But as we all know, shopping for clothes can be real hassle. Websites can be misleading, you never know what's going to fit, and there's tons of choice. Well, the good news is one of our sponsors is here to help. Let Stitch Fix do all the hard work for you. Do you ever wish you could send someone out shopping who knows your exact size, what you like to wear, and how much you like to spend on each item? Well, that's what Stitch Fix is. Stitch Fix is a service for both men and women and makes shopping for clothes easy. To get started, all you have to do is go to stitchfix.co.uk slash journey to set up a profile, and then they'll deliver five items of clothing chosen just for you in your taste size and budget and i've done it myself it's great it's like a little christmas present when you get them through and the fact it's chosen by someone significantly more stylish than myself is always useful because then the clothes are things you probably wouldn't naturally pick out for yourselves but are really good and it's nice and it makes you feel a bit special when it comes through the post uh, so i really recommend it now as stitch fix are our sponsors you usually pay a 10 pound styling charge but we have a special offer for you all you have to do is sign up and schedule your first delivery using stitchfix.co.uk journey and the styling charge for your first order will be waived so you can try stitch fix's online styling service for free. You can schedule at any time. There's no subscription required. Plus shipping, returns and exchanges are easy and free. That's stitchfix.co.uk slash journey. And if you keep all five items, you'll get 20% off. Right, let's get back to chatting with Anna. So this is an empire building journey for you. You're going you're gonna, to you're gonna have <laughs> hundreds of restaurants all over the world. No, not hundreds. But I would like to think I will have like a little Anna empire. Yeah, that, but I... I you, if you met Anna like back when I was a kid mm. or when I was like a young chef, you'd have heard me going, oh, I'd like this, no, oh, I'd like that. I don't have a fear of new um, adventures or challenges mm. because I believe in the idea of like making sure you've done your homework before you do it and then just doing a little bit of numbers check. And if it doesn't add up, well, then you've got to do something else. You know, I'm not like just going to do something without, you know, being prepared. So, you know. God, you're so inspiring. I think it's fabulous. The passion is incredible. Yeah, I just, I, it's, it's such a delight. It really is. So tell us about the cuisine. Obviously, we introed this with Irish cooking, but I, I appreciate you combine it with lots of things. But take us to what is what would the foods of Ireland that you were inspired by when you were younger and that first got you excited and wanted to know how they were made when you, you began? And how have you drawn those through to what you do now? 
So my mother made everything homemade. And I know lots of people bang on about this. But the truth is, when I was a kid, I didn't appreciate it. Like all little assholes that are born into a nice family with, you know, everything done for them. Like my mother made everything homemade. Like the jams, I can taste my mother's jams now. Like they're so incredible. Gooseberry, this gooseberry jam she used to make was incredible. And then this blackcurrant jam. And then when she didn't have enough fruit, she'd make a gooseberry and blackcurrant. All of them. Were she just... really made everything then. She was making jams as well. That's impressive. That is, isn't She's it? Like three star jams. She used to make <laughs> us top and tail the blackcurrants. I'm sorry. What is going on? <laughs> I don't even know. I don't even know what that means. What do? What do? You, how do you tail it? What's a tail on it? So you, when you pick it from the bush, there's like a little green stem sometimes. Mm, yeah. And then there's like a little kind of furry little top oh, on the yeah, other side. Oh, yeah, there is. Yeah, a little beard. We topped and tailed wow. every... Be- do you know how many berries you need to do to make one jar? It's like <laughs> child abuse. It's like child abuse. But anyway, <laughs> it obviously yeah. prepared me for the kitchens I entered into later on. Yeah. Um, but she made everything homemade. So uh, like m- mackerel, new potatoes and sprout and broccoli would be a dinner. Like just the most average mm. dinner. And let's be honest, we're in season now where that's going to be in a lot of Michelin star restaurants, obviously refined and things done to it, but the ingredients I was very familiar with. So when I went to a good kitchen and then they showed me what you could do with them, it blew my mind because I already liked the flavor, but then I learned how you could elevate it and change it and you could add salt to it because my mom's anti-salt. <laughs> she believes salt is like sprinkling heron on your food she doesn't like salt um but she has salt in her house now for me for when i come home she that's the rule that if i cook i have to have salt um but yeah so really good food really uh, the food that my my grandmother would have taught my mother like as in she was taught all of her life skills that she gathered she passed on to us so it's not just cooking it's about like how you shop in the supermarket so like when we would be kids, very young, you were taught like when you, you bought the bread, you know how you check the bread. It sounds so basic, but like obviously everybody looks at dates now. When you check the bread, you'd look at the bread, you'd make sure it wasn't opened. When you, when you went to get the milk, you went into the back of the fridge and you looked for the date. When you, know, when you were buying uh, your, your tomatoes or whatever, the idea that of the color and the squeezing and all of the, the bits and pieces, like when you were buying the mushrooms, she just taught us all how to make sure that whatever you bought it lasted because we'd one week for all of the food to last so if you bought milk that was going to go out of date well obviously it would go to waste i mean that's a stupid thing to say but if you bought a tomato that wasn't super fresh or was a bit soft by the time she might use it it would go to waste so it was always about how you were smart in how the 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 things that you brought home Mm. and that was just instinctive so all of those little things help you on the the right beginning curve of being a chef because you're already doing it when the, you know when you're checking the veg coming in you're like oh chef so and so you know um like rancid butter i remember being in the square and we used to get like big five kilo blocks of french butter and it came in and of course i walked past and it went butter's rancid walked on right and i was doing the thing and uh, nobody knew what I meant. They didn't even know the word rancid. That wasn't in their vocabulary. I don't know if it's an Irish thing that we use it. Anyway, I know it's an English word. But this is in the square, anyway, uh, in Michelin star restaurant, right? Let's, yes. uh, let's get so, the context. Yeah, okay. Yeah, I so, doubt they would use the word rancid in there very often, would they? Yes, exactly. <laughs> um, so anyway, went on with mise en place. And then I saw that they were about to prep the butter, which meant we used to cut it into blocks. So I went back over and I went, that butter isn't fresh, slowly. Boys, that butter <laughs> is it fresh? And they were all, none of them really weren't computing, mm. but a lot of them uh, worked, for, they were from Australia, a uh, few from New Zealand. Well, New Zealand, you, you're from New Zealand. Are you speaking to butter in New Zealand? Me, I'm not. Sorry, James. Sorry, sorry, sorry. <laughs> I, I wish I was. That, I'm not that. I'm sorry, James. I'm from, Wat- that cool. I'm from Watford. <laughs> it's near New Zealand. <laughs> it's that accent, James. It's just so like New Zealand. I, I told you. Wash him a shame. Shame. That's all I can say. Head injury. <laughs> anyway, they so are anyway, big into I, butter, aren't they? Well, they're big into, I'm uh, sorry to divert, but I didn't, wasn't ever advert for store, something some butter that was so uh, revolutionary. We had a thing in Parliament. Oh, anyway, I'm having, a, I'm having a moment from a 1980s TV commercial about New Zealand butter. Oh, I don't know. Well, edit point, way, edit point. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> now leaving all this in. I like either the idea way. you've been rebranded as a Kiwi. I think it's brilliant. <laughs> I'm so sorry. I told you it's the head injury. But anyway. Um, Go on. So, I don't think that they were as familiar with butter as me. So anyway, I stopped them prepping the butter and then they went and they told uh, Shane and, or God, they went and they told, uh, 
Rob and Phil about it. And it was like, yeah, the, the whole block of butter was like turning. So it wasn't totally rancid, but it was turning. So I know, I think you could do a test on me with uh, butter that's turning, sausages that are turning, chick, any of those things, because my mother, like, oh, she still fed it to us. But <laughs> yeah, in, that's the thing is you still get it. She wasn't <laughs> throwing it that away. away. <laughs> but it was like something that we were totally educated about. So, I mean, God, that was such a long explanation of where it comes from. But I was very lucky that I had a good food base mm. given to me by my mother. And my dad was great because he was the one that would bring me to the market. So we'd go to the veg markets, embarrassingly, like where the commercial veg markets were. Dad's like, yeah, two bags of potatoes, a bag of pears, oh, a no, box really? of pears. <laughs> yeah, no, we used to buy it all like in bulk. And we were like fruit bats eating like so much fruit <laughs> to like get rid of it. And then we'd go to the to host, to the, you know, to the fishmongers. He loved all of that. Mm. And it would have been like, I guess, because he grew up in Dublin city, kind of uh, by the Dublin Bay, he was used to that kind of life of buying from the producer. Mm. And that's what I was raised with. What, what, me, what a bedrock. That can I ask, a, a, was there a cooking taught at your school in Ireland? Was this part of your education as well or not? Yeah, home economics. Entered into a cookery competition and I won it, yeah. <laughs> what did you make? What did you make for home economics? I, I got three different types of fish and I platted them. Um, I found the recipe in a uh, cookery book that I got from the library. So I platted three different types of fish. I think it was like Gurnard, mackerel and hake. Oh no, Gurnard, mackerel and haddock or something like that. And I stuck them together with toothpicks and then I made a salsa. And I remember going into my big sister, Catherine, going, what's a salsa? I mean, I've got the, re- what's a salsa? And Catherine yeah. was like, so she made the salsa with me, but there was like sweet corn in it. Like it was mental. But like, <laughs> That's a very platted fish. I, I don't even heard of platted fish. Yeah, That's incredible. And then, well, yeah, the book when... told me to do it. <laughs> <laughs> but what I'm, I suppose I'm, I'm edging towards is that you're, you're, you're painting this incredibly vibrant, colourful journey through food for all your life. But it is quite an unusual journey. I think, you know, there's a lot of disconnect, I think, with, with food and ingredients in, in a lot of people's lives. Probably, you know, maybe not so many listening to the podcast because, you know, everyone here is probably very passionate about food. But for the, for the people out there who aren't listening, you know, they're, they're not having these moments. They wouldn't know what rancid butter tasted like or probably yeah. wouldn't even buy butter. They just get the spreadable stuff because it's easier, you know. And it's kind of, when I hear you talk, I think, God, you need to, you need to be on a battle bus Forget all the politicians, <laughs> just traveling the country, then the world, just squeezing tomatoes. Oh, showing people, show people how to be a, what did you call it? Top and tail of Blackberry. <laughs> yeah. But listen, listen, didn't, the, didn't some supermarkets start to take away dates on yogurts or something like that? Because yogurt doesn't go off. Did you not hear that recently? No. They're changing the dates. Yeah. So the idea mm. that like we, uh, we live in a society now where we are controlled by our supermarkets. I'm not wearing a tinfoil hat. I don't believe aliens trying to tap into my brain. But we are so slaves, including me. Mm. Sometimes I do it. Where a date is on something, you're like, oh, it's bad now. You're not oh, using yeah, your absolutely. senses. Yeah. Absolutely. You know, the, the whole point of what we were given instinctively, you don't even have to be good at food. Your body is wired to know that when you smell something, if it's wrong, you go, I'm not putting that in there. Not but the confidence... The confidence in knowing that if you eat something and it's less fresh, that it will taste less good mm-hmm. is the most important message you can give people because people think if it's less fresh, they'll die. Mm-hmm. So obviously, if you're eating meat that is not fresh, don't eat that. That's different. Shellfish, we know all that. But there's loads of things. Like I met a girl the other day and she was like, oh, my God, I ate a gone off orange. I was like, why did you do that? And she was like, well, I looked at the label and it said it went off, they went off yesterday. I was like, how do I delicately yeah. uh, handle this? I can't call her names. I've got a few. Um, but yes, like the fizzy before- melon. You know when you have fizzy melon, you're eating it going, why is it fizzy? And yeah. it's because it's gone off, right? It's got that strange fizziness yeah. on the tongue. The sugar is trying to turn into, into alcohol. alcohol. That's, which that's is not pretty much thing. what's happening. Yeah. Uh, is that why it's happening? There we go. Orange is the new black. Check it give out. Give it to my kids again. I just give it to my kids. How fizzy is it? Too fizzy? Fine. <laughs> If you're right, but, <laughs> but, for that. but certainly in the in the realm of sort of fruit and vegetables, I think you're absolutely right. I was, I mean, you know, it's a constant battle in my house to try and to sort of stop people throwing out vegetables because they've gone over their sell by date when they look yeah. perfectly fine. And and and, but I guess people don't have, as you say, the confidence because we haven't been taught, we don't experience it. You know, Britain, I think, you know, I don't know about Ireland, sounds like an idyllic food-based paradise from your description, <laughs> but certainly sort of Watford, where I'm actually from, uh, was, was, you know, was a Watford bit of a wasteland. Watford just outside Canterbury. Of, um, it was, was a wasteland of food knowledge. And I think there's a lot of people 
don't have that confidence and I just I you know I don't worry I don't keep you up at night but I do I don't see any any anything turning it around I don't see education in schools I don't see campaigns through politics and government making any difference to actually people's interaction with food and we talk about this a lot on the podcast our relationship with food whether it be from a conscious philosophical mental well-being kind of level but actually just in terms of our senses is something that I don't think people have any skill in you know I mean I know you're saying we should be worried no we should be worried no no I I totally believe tell us what to do Anna I tell, I tell you what we need to do. I tell you what we need to do. It's the ultra processed muck out mm. there that we need to get. Absolutely. You know, when you see the labels on cigarettes where they're like removing all the colors and then remove, get, forget cigarettes. That doesn't matter because a smoker is a smoker. But the people with food, we know cigarettes are bad, right? Mm. So a person is addicted to cigarettes or choosing that. But people with ultra processed foods, they're buying it innocently because they think, oh, it says it's low fat. Oh, it says it's. Yeah this, that, and the other, high in fiber, but it's artificial fiber that's been added into it. It is terrifying h- how people's diets are changing and how that there is very young people who are who are starting off life different than me. And I, I, didn't, I know I had a, an un... My um, childhood wasn't normal with the amount of food that what my mother made, uh, her made, homemade. But there's children now that from the minute that they're eating solids, they're eating ultra-processed foods, which is damaging their brains like studies showing that it actually is affecting uh, how they they can learn and communicate and the thing is that because it's more affordable it means people who have less money are more likely yeah. to eat a higher diet <gasps> i could do i could talk about this all day long it's heartbreaking <laughs> so we need people to to be kind of using their senses mm. and 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 buying fresher you know natural goods but that's easy when you know i'm a chef and also i've got the money to buy it it's 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 a real there's a whole layered effect of how complicated it is i just hope there's there's tv commissioners listening to this because i just i've always been searching for someone to teach the nation to cook i think we found her jay that's what <laughs> i think i, I think. just genuinely the passion is so in- all consuming i've never been so quite so inspired by someone we've had on this we've had lots of fantastic guests <laughs> but this is just it's just a joy because like, what like what what are the names that you had on there that haven't <laughs> <you> <laughs> exactly i'm gonna name and shame them <laughs> but this just feels like something that we can all do as well that's the, mm. the part of it is it's all around us and it's not we're not yeah. saying let's go let's go off to norway and get some wood and cook something over that or let's not yeah. disappear down to you know where james comes from new zealand and try and go and get some land <laughs> <or something>. let's <laughs> you know this is Okay, so take us from the take us take us away from the world of mouldy yogurts and fizzy melons. Take us to your restaurant now, and I would just what's the last dish that you put on the menu? And talk, I'd love to know about the kind of what what one of your most recent dishes, and just describe it to us because I love hearing okay. about these kind of things. Um, there is a cold lovage um, soup that's just gone on as a bia biog. So in the restaurant, we have taken. Um, the concept of what French restaurants did when they came to London. And that's what I'm trying to do with an Irish restaurant. So taking vocabulary that people are familiar with and replacing it with Irish vocabulary. So a beer biog replaces an amused bush. So what's beer biog? Beer biog means like small food or a small amount of food. So it's instead of an an amused bush. So instead of like, you know, the the little taster you get when you go to, so that's what we we would call it a beer biog. So is that Celtic? Yes. So it's, yes, it's it's the Irish language. So we use different things. Like instead of petty fours, we'd use the word milchon, which basically means like sweets, like, which is what petty fours are. Um, We do uh, I'm and uh, I'm August Aaron, which is like bread and butter. And ishka for water, uh, things like that, where the staff communicate between themselves. So the customers may or may not notice, but it's about the idea of a layered effect of sincerity of the restaurant results in a better end product. So, you know, like that invisible 10% that exists in good businesses where the customer doesn't really know it's there, but the people who work it and implement the jobs know it's there. And that's how you keep a high level. So there's loads of like even right down to the, the flour that we use to make the bread is the same flour my mother used to make bread. And that's not just because I'm like, oh, it's so romantic, Mammy's, Mammy's flour. <laughs> it's because it's the best flour I could find to make Irish soda bread. So it's like an, an Irish brand and it's a real coarse brown flour and it needs more liquid because of the coarseness of it. And it results in a much, much nicer Irish brown bread, Irish soda bread. Um, so anyway, the dish is uh, like a lovage. Uh, it's like a cold lovage soup with a kind of a new potato and a St. Ola goat's cheese crumb in it. And it's just a bit of yogurt. It's like a little snack when people arrive. Um, it's delicious. And the idea <laughs> that... Um, Lovage in Ireland, before we, uh, celery existed, Lovage grew everywhere in Ireland. It was in abundance. And I'm sure it was the same in the UK. There's loads of stuff 
that I think when I talk about food in Ireland, it would be the same because we're so close in, in the waters. It can't be that different. Um, and then we discovered celery, this fancy uh, vegetable. And then we almost got rid of lovage in the quest to be like, oh, let's grow celery, celery. So it's like this kind of important ingredient in Irish cookery that you would never find in a supermarket anymore. And it's really sad. So it's remarkable, isn't it? These, the, the way these ingredients change in often it's trends isn't it yes, trends lead fashion, the way like yeah. oysters coming in and going out being the food of the poor now the food of the rich and now not really food of anybody but it just feels like they've sort of and, then, and and like you said some of those things and then all, the trend leads the growers and the growers lead the, the purchase and it all goes from there and it's rediscovering those must be quite a joy sometimes absolutely in ireland so in the famine obviously some people could eat shellfish if they lived near waters that they could eat it so people were starving to death but still wouldn't admit that they were eating shellfish because it was seen as like you're eating like like worms, muck. It was uh, shellfish wow. was seen as the lowest of the low. So you know the famous song of Molly Malone, crying cockles and mussels. Yeah. So that was because she was so poor. The 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 um, market she was working in was really poor. So she's selling these if you want them, and she's saying they're alive because obviously they have to be alive or you'll be sick. But it was like that would have been just she had nothing else to sell. So you know, yeah. That was mm. it's, it was totally seen as the lowest of the low, and now obviously it's all fancy. Mm. That's great. Which, yeah. isn't it? I think our chefs are often are often led by that as well. It's 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 discovering the things that have not necessarily been looked at a great deal, and sometimes things that people count as not worthy of like the awful cooking for example you know finding things that people think you shouldn't cook and going well why why don't we have a go at that and and you look very excited when i said the word <laughs> in a way i've not seen anyone look excited before <laughs> but we're always talking about like sustainability like in our industry people are like oh you know this is wrong and that's wrong and i'm like sustainability comes from us using taking an animal growing it having it in a nice environment you know good husbandry taking care of it and then once it's slaughtered everything is used and everything means awful blood, everything that, you know, that the hide, anything. And then that's what sustainability is all about. What's not sustainable is to constantly be just celebrating fillet steaks or ribeyes. Like this is not sustainable. And, and although chefs know it, we, I don't think we put enough pressure on, on, on ourselves to create things that celebrate the lesser ingredients. Um, in saying that, I do have a black pudding dish that is the signature dish in my restaurant. <laughs> I know. Uh, and it's actually made with beef blood, which is quite interesting mm. because obviously Ireland is famous for beef. Um, mm. So it's a, a beef-based um, black pudding. And it would be known as a breakfast black pudding in Ireland. So I didn't intentionally think it would be on my menu. But after doing trials with, I mean, 30 different black puddings, it still ended up being the one that I wanted. So was um, that 30 types of... Did you try out multiple different types of blood? Every no, 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 black pudding. So that I would be getting it from another um, supplier. So artisan black puddings that are, were created in Ireland. And even though I would say no, I'd lots of places from the UK still go, we'll just try this just in case. And so, I was like, fair enough, I'll give it a go. But still, the, the Clonacilty black pudding is the one I use is the one that ends up being on the menu. And it's it's a signature dish now. But what, it's it's what it's all about. Can I, what is in, because my, my view of an, of an Irish breakfast is black and white pudding, right? So what is, what, what is, what is in white pudding if it's not, if it's not blood? I mean, I should know this. I could probably Google it, but, I'm, you know, what is it? Go on. White pudding is everything just mushed and pureed, pretty much. <laughs> so it's like, what's that? Is that a bit of lung? A little bit of stomach? <laughs> yes, please. No, it, it varies. It varies. It varies. It's, it's, um, it is, um, it's, it's, it's more meat-based. It's got no blood in it. And I think it is, it depends on what producer creates it. But originally, both of them were used for specific reasons. You know, you'd slaughter your, mm. your any animal and then you would make your, black, your, your blood sausage from the blood. And then all of the bits that you couldn't create anything from were kind of brought together and grind together to create this other white sausage because nothing was wasted. But we live in a society now where we have too much meat too many options and too much waste. Mm. So something like a, a, a white pudding isn't seen as like important because you know, you're just gonna have an extra sausage where the white pudding and black, you would never have had like the English breakfasts and the Irish breakfasts. You would never have had years ago, black pudding, white pudding, sausage, rashers, egg, fried bread and fried potatoes and some sort of vegetable. You would, that would never have been a meal ever. It would have been probably one or two maximum of those proteins 
and then the fried bread, maybe, you know, you yeah. egg, egg would have been instead of sausage, like all, like an egg would have been seen as dinner. Mm. Like the way we approach protein is startling. Like we're, 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 it's, but it's not our fault because you go to the supermarket and it's just, everything's becoming accessible, affordable. It's just easy. Even though, well, it, well it is, in well, saying not- that. Well, it used to be past yes. tense. Well, but in a way, though, people have, uh, there's an upside to this because people have never really understood the real cost of good food, I think, mm. and haven't really been prepared to pay for it because they don't have to. They can get ultra-processed food at a much lower price, so they've gone that route, whereas now even the ultra-processed food is going up in price. So I yeah. hope maybe people will stop and think and, and see where the value point is and maybe actually spending a few pounds more to get much, 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 much better food is, yeah. you know, is, is a and good outcome. But it's a minefield, isn't it? Like for people like us that we understand food, but people who don't, they'll see a price tag and think, oh, that's more expensive. Should I buy it? That'll be better. Mm. And that doesn't always result in a better product. It's actually, it's about understanding food. Like sometimes a bavette is better than a steak. And trying to explain that to people is like, it's only if you know how to handle both meat, you can celebrate both, but you know, both uh, cuts of meat. So it's really hard that people always want me when they ask me questions to give them like the answers, like the secrets. They were looking for fast tracks. And I'm like, it's so hard because I want to give them something for them to have a good meal. But all I want to say is that just cook it. And if it's delicious, remember it. And if it's not, remember it. That's it. You just got to, just got to throw yourself in and make those mistakes and that's how you educate yourself but that's super boring they're like no no give me the secret <laughs> what is the thing that's caught your what's the thing that's uh, noodling in the back of your mind at the moment in terms of new ingredients new dishes the thing that you're thinking about or working on but you haven't quite cracked but it's caught your curiosity at the moment is there anything out there that you're thinking oh i'd really fancy that or something that's coming along well you see because my restaurant is about taking like old irish uh, recipes or or ingredients um, it's actually probably less exciting for the listeners, but I've been working on an Irish stew for three years. <laughs> oh, no, not three no. years. Three wow. years. That's it's gone on the menu stew, once. It's gone on the menu once for a week and I changed it twice in the week. And I was like, it's just not good enough. I was like, I think when I finally launch it in the restaurant, it will be um, autumn uh, of this year. And I'll probably do like some sort of launch because it's such a big deal. But if there's one dish that the whole world knows about, it's Irish stew. So in your mind, just, what are the core ingredients for an Irish stew? What does it, what does it have to contain? You don't have to give us the... the, the you know, this is hilarious. Thing. My dad thinks it's beef and my mom thinks it's lamb. Mm. So depending on where you come from, it's a different meat. So I thought it was always lamb. But dad was like, uh, when I made it for you, it was always beef on it. Um, <laughs> but yeah, so beef, uh, red lentils, pearl barley, potatoes, swede, or we call it turnip in Ireland, uh, carrots, um, onions, no garlic. Mm. Like garlic was like my, when my mother discovered garlic, my dad thought she was dying. She was eating garlic like, <laughs> like Brazil nuts, right? She was gobbling down on them. And dad used to say like, he'd walk into the room and like nearly call the priest going, I think, <laughs> I think I'm going to need you. But like garlic, when my parents would have grown up would have been like as exotic as like truffles. Mm. Like it wasn't, there was garlic clubs. Like it was not, normal so garlic was like something that was only introduced when i would have been in around 10 it started to be in our dinners but yeah so that's what would have been the core ingredients and then probably cabbage at the end of the, the dad's stew and then mom would make it with lamb and there'd always be like loads of fat at the top of it you know skimming it off well, yeah. what are you um, working what's 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 been your challenge for three years and what's the thing that's made you constantly not put it on the menu what's not right so the food at Myrtle is all about taking like an old dish and making it more elegant, more refined, but essentially, a lit, you know, not all of them are very close to it, but you, you can get the heartbeat of what that recipe is. An Irish stew, if I make it like I should make it, it's still delicious, it's gorgeous, but it wouldn't obviously match the rest of the menu. So it's about how I change it, but keep it the same without it being too chefy or too rustic. So that's why I just can't put it on the menu. I'm like, oh, that's that's I've, I've clarified that too much. Shouldn't be this, you know. I, although I can't help it, it will absolutely have to be clarified. Like, as in, that would just have to be the style of it. But uh, you know, it's about getting it right, uh, how it's served, uh, the dialogue that goes with it. It has to be an experience. Like I almost feel like I want people when they have the Irish stew, they don't even get to choose their starter. The starter will be reflected in other ingredients to do with the stew. Like I want it to be a a real celebration. So I guess. It's like my, you always need something that you're shooting for 
that like keeps you entertained on the nights when you can't sleep. And like <laughs> exactly. that runs through my head and it's, it's really exciting. I love mm. this. This is like, it's, it's a passion project and there's loads of other dishes for me to create, but when it goes on the menu, I think I'll be, it'll be a, it'll be a big, big deal. Mm. But like even crumble, like crumble is like a thing that I put on, take it off straight away. Cause I'm like, Oh, too rustic. Oh, too, too finicky. You know, like it's, there's certain things that I, I the, the, there's a delicate balance with the restaurant that I want people to always feel it's effortless. Like it doesn't feel tweaked. So, mm. You know, um, when you, when you boys come to the restaurant, you'll know what I'm talking about. It's got a real inf- informal feel, but when you look at the food, you know the detail that goes into it. So it's mm-hmm. like my parents can enjoy it, but people who understand food will also go, "Oh yeah, yeah, that's nice." I'm just the- thinking you need to hurry up and open a second restaurant, Anna, to give you the freedom <laughs> to to have two menus, you know, in different places. I, I, I was wondering as you were talking how how the you know the well cultured diners of Chelsea you know, <laughs> respond to some of the sort of the very romantic things that you're talking about here. And I wonder if there's a constraint of, of design, as it were, and chefiness you have to, you have to balance. No, 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 no. It's, it's, it's only my own, um, uh, what would you say, limitations that mm. I, I feel like I understand what the brand is. I feel like I understand the message we're giving. And it's very important not to let your ego or your or even your own, let's say, nervousness. Oh, I, I should have this on. I should, I should. People have asked me for this. I should just put it on. Give the customer what they want. So it's all, it's about like being confident and knowing, right, it'll go on when it's ready. And I'll work on something else that's a bit easier that, you know, it's all, it's a bit of a journey. I'm in no hurry. Everything to do with the restaurant. Like when I opened up, it was like quiet. I kept it quiet because I had no money for marketing, but that's beside the point. I was in no hurry to like, you know what I mean? To, well, respond. <laughs> no, but I think you're right. I think because I think, you know, funnily enough now, in my new guys, you know, for, I, I am a marketeer. I am a marketer. I do marketing. And, and we spend a lot of time in, in, you know, in our business talking about marketing and marketing promotion and campaigns and messaging and all this stuff. But, but my message to always, the reverse message back to the teams is that, we, you know, marketing's easy if the product's fantastic, right? You know, that's my view is that, you know, if we get the product right, yeah, you know, people might find it quicker if we put a big giant blimp in the sky with its name, but people will find it because people know what's good and they know what's bad, you know? And I think if you, if you focus on getting your message out and getting people to come before you're ready for them to come because the product's not right, they rumble you in a nanosecond and they never come back. That's, that's my view. So I think you're absolutely right. Absolutely. Focus on the product all the time, 100%, 24 hours. Yeah, James, the fat duck blimp would be quite cool. I do have to say that I quite like the idea of a giant inflatable well, Heston. I think Heston would be into that Watch well. this space is all I'll say. <laughs> Anna, Anna, it has been a genuine, absolute inspirational delight speaking to you I, I have to say i've enjoyed this conversation more than i think we've had so far you are wonderful to talk to incredibly inspiring i think just just so charismatic and it, when it comes to the food side of things you just make everyone want to go and grab a wooden spoon i think it's just wonderful thank you so much for coming on it's been oh. such a pleasure we appreciate it now where can people obviously people can go flock and queue outside myrtle in chelsea but where <laughs> else can we be seeing you on socials and things Oh yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm like obviously I'm on Instagram and and uh, uh, Facebook and no, sorry. Can I say that again? Because that's embarrassing. Uh, please do not. I get all these weirdos on Facebook. Do not contact me on Facebook. <laughs> God. You can definitely not be found on there's Facebook. There's a certain type. There's a certain type of man who's very comfortable with asking weird things on Facebook. Do not contact me on Facebook. So Instagram, Twitter. Um, I I'm sorry. I don't even know if I understood the question. No, you nailed it. Definitely not Facebook, but find you everywhere else. Yeah. <laughs> and on our TV screens, I'm sure, any day soon. Yeah, absolutely, you know. yeah. yeah. I do morning live every week with um, uh, uh, BBC One, uh, usually on Fridays. Um, so that's a breakfast show where I do like very affordable kind of um, simple uh, dishes that people could actually just say, oh, I'll buy one or two ingredients and just throw it together. It's kind of, you know, nice. I was just going to say, please, please, anybody in television who's listening, you might listen to us. Anna needs a show where she teaches us how to cook. I've always said that to every commissioner I've ever I'm met. I'm already just on need, it, James. I'm already thank on you, it. Thank <laughs> you, tweeting, sexting, because I just think I remember when I was a kid watching television, the people that inspired me to love food, which yeah. I didn't realise I loved it, were the people that cooked. They weren't the people that competed and did fanciful, you know, you know, crazy competitions and all this sort of stuff. They were Delia Smith. It was Keith Floyd. Yeah. It was, you know, a random people like... Um, 
Oh, oh God. I mean, obviously, Amanda Jaffrey and Ken Hom and those characters, and there were some other characters along the way we've forgotten, but they would just cook, and they would tell us stories, and they would cook and show us how to use ingredients. But for some reason, television f- deems that too boring <laughs> for, for people to, to put up with. And I just think we need it. We And I think people love it, because when you put it on, they watch it. I mean, I think that's what you'll discover, Anna, from your, I'm sure when you do a recipe that people like... They want to. They want to cook it, and they contact you, and they want the recipe, and they want to do it. Whereas, you know, if you're on a competition show, you don't get that. You don't. You get you're amazing. You know, and I think we lack that, and I think that would help solve our problem because I think yeah, people I don't think know how to cook. Everything in life is all about like, um, you know, a mixture. There's room in our industry for everything. You know, like when it comes to like um, when you think of like acting or theatres or whatever, you've got like the Oscars, and then you've got like there's a pub down the road to me called the Latchmere and there is the like theater you can buy a ticket for six quid you know like our industry is like that as well where you need like simple salt of the earth cooking but also we all like to see some smokes and mirrors we all like to see a bit of jazz as well so I think it's about like having you know a good mixture of both available to all ages it would be nice to obviously have a a younger generation being hooked on like the way we were maybe when we were younger Mm. but I don't know watch this space mm, Anna thank you ever so much best of luck with everything uh, and uh, yeah we'd love to get you back again sometime soon because it's been a delight uh, but for yeah. this time James thank you ever so much what a joy that was oh absolutely inspirational I, I was as you as Anna was speaking I've just been reading a lot of marketing puff I'm going to show you a book now if you haven't read this one Anna you don't need to but this is this is about the growing oh. of, of, of Nike's mark you know it Jay probably it's it's, it's yeah. like a it's a, like a benchmark marketing thing by the chief marketing officer of Nike but literally the chapter I just read was about Kobe Bryant and and he could have been talking about you because he says the same things about Kobe Bryant but you just expressed the 10% difference for focus on the success not the failure just believe in yourself it's just you you don't need to be taught that stuff if it's in you, in wow, your DNA. And go. so, you know. You and Kobe. I, yeah. I mean, uh, you know. honestly, are you sure you just want to finish? Do you not want to just keep going and just get all these compliments? I was like, look at this, lads. Well, you're a star. Well, we well done. <laughs> and she can slam dunk. Uh, until, <laughs> until next week, James, speak to you very soon. My pleasure. Bye. Bye.